Hello, amazing parents and caretakers, and welcome to the Pumped Up Parenting Podcast. I'm your family empowerment coach, Celia Kibler. I'm a mom of a blended family of five kids. I'm a grandma of nine kids, an author, a teacher, a speaker, and a consultant with over 40 years of training and real-life parenting experience. I'm here to offer you practical, doable tips, strategies, and techniques that will pump up your parenting skills and create peace, love, and laughter throughout your family. In addition, I'll be interviewing some great humans that are on a mission to make your life a better, happier, and healthier life. So let's not waste any time and get started with the next episode of the Pumped Up Parenting Podcast. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Pumped Up Parenting Podcast. I'm Celia, your host, and I'm excited to have my guest on today. He is a board-certified doctor, Dr. Benjamin Silverberg. He is a board-certified family physician out of West Virginia University. He works currently in college health. But we're going to be talking today about some very sensitive topics and information that we as parents want to know about. And that is sexual victimization. And we're going to talk about younger, younger kids in grades, like middle school and high school, and how that moves into college world. And it's information that all of us parents need to know and not close our eyes to and not use what is not a parenting strategy, the God forbid, God forbid should just kind of be erased. And let's learn and get educated. And let's do that from Dr. Silverberg, who I'm now welcoming to our podcast. Dr. Ben, welcome to the Pumped Up Parenting Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I know that this is a difficult topic to talk about, but that's part of the reason why I think it's really important for us to discuss this today. Absolutely. And I'm very grateful for you doing this. Um, So let me ask you first, how did you get into this? How did you, I mean, obviously you want to be a doctor, but how did you kind of get into this specific aspect of personal care? Sure. So when I work in college health, people tend to gravitate towards providers that have the same presenting gender as they do, particularly with personal issues such as mental health or sexual health. Now, as the only male physician in our practice, I tend to see a disproportionate number of men. One of the biggest concerns that they come in with is sexually transmitted infection screening, sexual health, what's normal, what's not. But one day I had a student that came in for sexually transmitted infection screening who very shortly devolved into tears and admitted to me that the sexual contact he had had the night before was not something that he wanted or felt was appropriate. He had a monogamous partner otherwise, did not want to bring anything to her. And I realized in that moment I didn't know exactly what to tell him about his experience and where to go from there, because there's plenty of medical legal issues with testing or treatment reporting that can can become very difficult for those students. So I 
started exploring this out of my own ignorance, my own blind spots, which has led me here today to be a more informed and respectful clinician. Well, I know the students in your care are very grateful for your help because it's, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard area. And I'm afraid it's becoming more and more prevalent in today's society with access to the internet. You know, on the internet, you can search one thing and before you know it, all kinds of great fun stuff comes up and you're like, holy cow, what do we do about this? You know, and unfortunately for kids, they start seeing pornography. They start seeing things they, you know, that don't um, show us what a true loving relationship is and they start believing that is normal and that is what lovemaking is and then that changes the whole dynamic yeah i absolutely agree and it's not just what they're seeing but it's who they can get in contact with so the internet screens are wonderful places to hide where they may not be meeting someone their age or who pretends to be the person they'd say they are. And unfortunately, sexual violence or other forms of abuse can actually be conducted online and through technology. So when we normalize, for instance, pornographic access and our tweens have cell phones with cameras built in or webcams, then there's the potential of taking underage photos or even legal photos technically but then they can be used against that person. Exactly. And, and you know, I know that when the sexting, I guess it's called not texting, when the passage of nude photos goes on with children, it's still child pornography. It doesn't right. matter that a child is passing it along. It's still child pornography and it's still against the law. And what they may be viewing as an innocent thing because of the times could actually be something that could be traced back to them as something they've done illegally. You bring up a very good point that not all people who perpetuate sexual violence intend to. It may also be born out of ignorance, um, not having a foundation for what is normal and what is accepted. So one of the ways of thinking about this is not looking at who's at risk of becoming a predator or someone who commits sexual violence, not looking at someone who is going to be victimized, but recognizing that any person, any age, any group has both the potential to do this and also to be victimized. So if you're in middle school, you're in high school, what are some things that happen to kids that get them into situations that they honestly don't know how to get out of. One of the things that I wanna point out as kind of a, a introduction to this is bullying in middle school is actually linked to sexual harassment in high school. And this is really important because again, this is when youth are first establishing romantic and sexual relationships for the first time. And similarly, they're seeing these influences from families, peers, so it may not even necessarily be them who are being bullies or uh, bullied, but they see this also in popular culture. So these examples really do become foundational. And before we get too much further into this conversation, I do want to make a definition or offer a definition. Please. You may hear me kind of vacillating with sexual violence, victimization, sexual assault, um, things of that nature. 
it's kind of difficult to come up with a capture phrase for all of this. So I try to use sexual violence because it really underscores that there is something violent about this, that there's a power differential. So someone is in a position of power over someone else, privilege or whatnot, forcing or manipulating someone else. And that may not always be uh, successful, but they're doing some kind of unwanted sexual activity. And part of the major thing here is it's without their consent. When we have people who are underage, by definition, they can't actually consent now. There are some state regulations where if there's a certain age difference, they can have sexual contact, but still that doesn't make the online or in-person sexual violence acceptable. Because again, it's without wanting to engage in that. Right. And it's, it's something that, like you say, can also be created in their home life. You know, people think even like bullying, bullying's bullies learn to bully somewhere. And often that's at home. And if you're, I, I always advise parents, your relationship between the two parents that are at home. Hey, parents. Just want to take a break from this podcast and ask you, are you tired of feeling like a bad parent and second guessing yourself all the time? Are you wondering how you can start becoming proactive instead of reactive so you're not yelling but calmly communicating to your kids? Overwhelmed with sorting through the myriad of parenting information that's out there and ready to set up a system that works for you now and in the future? How about instead we put a proven plan in place that will create more cooperation, more listening, more happiness in your home without all the drama? You can do it. Become a member of my Tranquility Tribe and start feeling confident and hopeful again. After all, we're raising adults, not children. And don't your kids deserve the best? So just go to mytranquilitytribe.com and let's get started on your vision today. And now back to our podcast. Is what is showing your children their normal for a relationship. So if you're having a bossy relationship, but it's not just bossy, it's turned into controlling. It's turned into a, a cat and mouse game of yelling and shouting and calling names and cussing and violence and all of that that is your child's normal. And they're going to take that normal. This is a relationship, the dynamic of a relationship. And they're going to, you know, use that for their siblings, their friends, their family members, their extended family, and their future love interests. Yeah. So intimate partners, whether that's physical or sexual assault, that's one model that unfortunately the children are exposed to. Unwanted sexual contact or touching, and I'm not just talking about child sexual assault, but things that are even a little bit more subtle. So off-color jokes or suggesting that someone may want to do this to someone else, especially in front of a younger person, 
that becomes okay language, that becomes an okay ideal on, or maybe not ideal, but action, what they think that they can do. And again, this is imprinted on our kids. I'll point out with some statistics that victimization, sexual assault by age 18, one in four girls and one in six boys. Wow. So again, they're being imprinted before they're even going off to college. And the numbers, unfortunately, uh, don't get a ton better in the college environment, especially for young people that haven't been outside of the home. They're kind of unmonitored and starting to get into potentially dangerous situations. Wow. There's a view of what is considered sex and what isn't. And, you know, I, I haven't had kids in school for a long time, but I work with a lot of parents that do, and I monitor what's going on. But this whole concept where, you know, for lack of a better word, or I guess I can't have a better word, <laughs> oral sex is mm-hmm. not sex. And back when, you know, President Clinton was in office, that was his thing. I did not have sex with that woman because in his eyes, he didn't have intercourse. So therefore, he didn't have sex. And that seems to be a lot of the thought, well, that's not sex. We're okay because we're having oral sex. And it also seems to be an area where people can be controlled. One kind of variant on that as well is if there's a male partner and he does not ejaculate, that might not be considered sex in their eyes. If there's no penetration necessarily, but either rubbing or attempted penetration that did not go well, um, or even things using other parts of the body or toys for that matter, that is still sexual contact with some amount of risk. So it's very hard for us to explain this when we've got a 12 or 13 year old in front of us saying, we want you to be in control of your own body. And here's all the different things that you can do with your body. Um, Parents get a little bit worried that we're putting ideas in the head. And this may be super embarrassing for those tweens who are then going to shut down and not able to hear this. Right. It's it's a hard conversation. And, and it is true. It's like, well, what, how much do I tell? my child? How much do I reveal? Only my concern is because people also ask me, when do I start talking about it? And honestly, the conversation of sex starts when they're born, not too long after, because you start talking about different parts of the body and stuff. So it starts early on. There's conversation. You get into the bathtub, you talk about different things you know, to, to lighten the moment. No, I probably shouldn't tell. <laughs> I'll have to make sure my son does not listen to this, but <laughs> you know, it, when he was like two, we used to put the shower, the shampoo bottle cap on his penis. And he go, look, mom, a hat, you know, and, and all of that goes to conversation that happens from the time they're very young. And I know that many parents think, I don't want to put those ideas in their head. But in my head, I will tell parents, well, you have a choice. And the choice is you tell them and explain them from your point of view or Google will. And that's 
that, in my opinion, says it all. You hit the nail on the head there. And if it's not Google, it's their peers who have their own influences. So one of the strategies that I might suggest, and my kids are not old enough for this yet, so I have not used it with my own kids, fair, uh, fair kind of warning, is the idea of talking about bodily autonomy and consent. So I have seen internet memes with people saying, you know, you really shouldn't be forcing your children to hug a particular relative or to get a kiss on the cheek. And though I know that sounds a little bit weird with the generation, how we were brought up, showing our children that they have bodily autonomy, that they can control what happens with their body, who touches them, what level uh, that that is at. One of the common things that we learn in medical school is how to broach an intimate physical exam with a minor, reminding our particularly young kids we're going to be looking at a private area uh, or examining a private area. This is only something that clinicians should be doing and potentially your parents. Um, no one else should be touching you and uh, you need to tell your parents if they are. Then as we get a little bit older, kind of hitting, I hate to use the word prophylactically, but it still applies, consent and what actually consent is with saying that this is you clearly saying that something is okay that another person can do, recognizing that that does not give them the freedom to do that again in the future or to do anything, but at least saying, I'm allowing this thing to happen. Exactly. And teaching our children that no means no. And if mm. you have a conversation, you must be respectful of the person you know, you're having that conversation with. And if they're not ready, they're not ready. And understanding, I used to have long talks with my kids about responsibility. You are responsible for what you're doing. And if you are going to engage in an intimate relationship, then you also have to be responsible about it. You have to know that your partner is also willing. You have to understand that if you don't use a certain amount of protection, whatever, a baby could result. If it's a heterosexual, you know, combination of two and you have to use proper protection against venereal diseases and things like that, sexually transmitted diseases, I guess I should say. So I, I had long conversations with my children on that, with my boys, when they became teenagers, I actually would buy a box of condoms and keep it in the medicine cabinet. And we'd have long talks and I would let them know that that was for them. I was not going to count them. I was not going to, you know, see who's doing what. I, when it was empty, I would refill it because I wanted them to be responsible. I wasn't going to be like, oh, just they'll never have sex because I, I don't think that's a reality. Same with my daughter. When she came to me and told me she was ready to have an intimate relationship, we took care of that with birth control, you know? So also knowing that they can come to you. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's uncomfortable, but it's, a, it's something that wouldn't you rather have this conversation than have something horrible happen to your child because they simply didn't know. Right. I remember actually one of the rules that my mom had when I was in high school 
was if I was ever in a situation that I did not feel that I could leave, whether that was because I had underage alcohol or some other situation, call her, she would pick me up, no questions asked. And I think of that as flying with a safety net. So giving me the chance to make mistakes and potentially dip my toe into dangerous waters, but then teaching me to recognize that and giving me a lifeline to get out of that. That can be harder with certain other things, adolescent relationship abuse. Um, but if someone is able to point out, this is not what is acceptable. This is how we're going to get out of an unacceptable situation. I think that's really helping teach our children where to go from there, what they can have safely in the future. Absolutely. And with that said, you can create like a secret code between you mm -hmm. and your child. And like, if you text the letter X, whatever, that might mean you're in trouble and come and get me and allow your children to save face. Mm -hmm. Because if a child thinks they're going to be ridiculed for doing whatever they're doing, you know, oh, you're a baby, your parents are coming. Just, you know, allow, give your children permission to say, oh, my, my, my crazy mom, she just like gets worried. My, you know, call me stupid. I don't care what you call me, but call me to get you out of a situation you can't get out of. Allow them to save face because that's part of the stuff too. Oh, what are they going to think of me? You've brought up a really beautiful point um, about kind of putting on two different masks. The mask of being the uh, bad cop, the difficult parent, and all of our kids know the persons who's Parents are more strict and who are not. So you have that outward mask, but the inward mask is good cop and trying to protect and have this uh, open conversation. So what the peers may think, you're being strict, but your child, your children recognize that they can explore these things, um, like your box of condoms that never is counted, saying, hey, we prefer that you're not sexually active. But if you are, it's risk minimization. This is how right. to protect yourself. Exactly. Exactly. So when you work with the college students, because of course, eventually, so, you know, many of our listeners have kids in college and many of our listeners will eventually have kids in college or, you know, not everyone goes to college, but at that level of almost an adult, because, you know, the human brain doesn't fully develop until 25 years old. So you're close, you know. So what do you see a lot of as people that, I guess, that walk into your clinics? I think it is fair to walk into a clinic and not know necessarily what's going to happen to be very nervous about having to show an intimate body part or to think that you've now picked up a lifelong infection, be that herpes, HIV or something else. So one of the things that I try to talk about with my students is this is what we're going to do today. If I ask a question that you don't want to answer, you just let me know and we'll move on. Um, I'm not going to be doing anything that's a surprise for you today. I will always tell you beforehand. This is particularly important for my female patients. If they're having some kind of pelvic exam, I tell them everything. I walk them through it before we even get to that point. And then I do that again as we're doing the exam. You're going to feel my left hand on your inner thigh. I'm going to insert the speculum. You may feel some pressure. You're going to hear it cracking. That's my plastic speculum, not you. So 
kind of pulling back the veil as to what's going to happen. I do see a lot of anxiety in my students when they think that, for instance, this is herpes, or they receive that anonymous text message saying, you've been exposed to a sexually transmitted infection. So we do everything to see, is there an issue that we need to deal with right now? But then we use this as an opportunity to talk about safer sexual practices and other forms of prophylaxis. It goes beyond condoms. It includes safer substance use. So for instance, the student that says, hey, you know, can I drink on this medication? Well, let's talk about that. And if you are going to drink, I prefer you to be around friends you trust so you are not getting, again, yourself into a, a negative situation. But there's other medications that we can use, vaccinations to protect our youth. The human papilloma virus vaccine really should be started for someone who's sexually active. And that is not an invitation to start sexual practice. It is protecting that person before they get to that point. And then medications like HIV PrEP, which stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. This is a medication. Currently, we've got uh, oral pills. The injection has actually just come onto the market. But these are ways that people can reduce the risk of HIV acquisition, as it were. So there's things out there that students may not even know about. And we need to bring this up to them. Ignorance is not bliss on this topic. If the parents don't feel they can have that conversation, let me as the clinician do that. I'm never going to blindside a parent, um, but particularly when they become adults, this is information that they have a right to. And my exam room may be the only place where they have access to accurate and non-judgmental information in this regard. Yes, I love that. And you know, I was gonna ask you, when they come in, do you find that many of them are not educated? Many of them are almost, you know, are there a lot of kids that are naive? Like I know me personally in college, I was pretty naive. Are you finding that a lot with students? Well, this goes back to what we were saying before um, with the idea that a person may not have the same definitions of what sexual contact is. And that kind of is pervasive in other areas. So if they're not conceptualizing that as sex, um, they don't necessarily think of the risk. And even if they are thinking about it, sex, there are a plethora of studies, unfortunately, that show that students of this age don't necessarily know what the side effects of an oral contraceptive would be, for instance, or how gonorrhea and chlamydia are transmitted, what that means in terms of treatment. So there've been kind of objective studies saying they just don't have that scientific information and if you don't have that information, you're going to fill it in with what you see on the internet, what your peers are telling you, which may be incorrect. So if that is, oh, for instance, getting some infection from a toilet seat, and there are some that do continue to live on shared surfaces, but they may worry unnecessarily, which doesn't have great consequences for their, their mental health or their feeling of sexual comfort in future relationships. You know, it's like it, if you think of you, whoever you as in whoever's listening to this right now, when we have a question, I know like sometimes I'll watch a movie and I'll be like, oh, I want to know what's up with this person or I want to know who this person. First thing you do is you search Google. We all do it. You know, we all search the Internet. We find out our information somehow on there. 
And if you think if you're a child or teen or, well, mostly a teen or a college student, although even younger are getting quite savvy with the internet, obviously, you need, you have a question, that's where you're going to go. That's where you're going to search it. And that's why it is so important as parents. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it can be embarrassing. And if you're not sure if you can even handle it, then practice it with someone you trust. Practice it with, if, if you have a significant other or, or a friend or something like that, practice the conversation before you go and have it with your child. Consult your physician. Maybe your physician is willing for you to come in and have the three of you sit there. I don't know. I mean, I don't know why they wouldn't be. And make sure, though, that you are talking to your kids. Don't just avoid it. One way around that awkward conversation is writing things. Yeah. So as we're looking at this generation that, again, is very screen addicted um, and typing and all of this, if you can't have that live verbal conversation, think about being on a different computer in a different room to avoid that kind of sense of awkwardness, even go through texting. Um, I remember, you know, back in elementary school for me, which is pre-internet, of course, I'm dating myself with that. One of the things that was suggested, and I was getting this as a, as a kid at the time, was writing down the question and passing that off to the parents so they had time to reflect on that and figure out how much information they wanted to give and not blush and feel put on the spot, but give them a chance to think about how they wanted to respond. And similarly, the parent could be doing the same. I'm going to be asking some personal questions. I want to just open this conversation, recognizing you may not feel comfortable telling me face to face, but I want to give you that outlet to always be able to communicate with them. I love that. That's a great suggestion. So let's go back to sexual violence. How does it happen? Let's just talk about what are the scenarios that create this violence? What situations do kids get themselves in? Remember again that sexual violence is the leveraging of privilege or power over someone else, and they don't have a say in it. So think about bullying in middle, middle school, sexual harassment, be that actual touching or just verbal comments that are made. This is important because youth are establishing the relationships then. Their influences manifest in what they see in the future. Adolescent relationship abuse, as I mentioned a little bit before, that may include controlling behaviors. So the partner that tells the other what they can wear, who they can hang out with, asking to look at their cell phone to see text messages and make sure they're quote unquote not cheating. These behaviors are not necessarily violent. Doesn't mean that someone is going to hit their partner because they're not happy that they came back at a different time, but it's still controlling. And for some victims of this adolescent relationship abuse, they see that as true love. Oh, my partner cares about me and wants to know where I am because they love me. And that's not true love, that's controlling. So again, it's the leveraging of the power differential, which then allows the people that perpetuate it to feel like that's okay in future relationships outside of even romantic or sexual relationships, but in the workplace. 
And then the people that have been the recipients of that, well, that's the normal. I need to be submissive. That's what is expected of me. And that can be a dangerous thing to really set the foundation for in middle and high school. Absolutely. Control is always, it's always a dangerous situation when one person wants to control another person. And like you say, it shows up in so many things. And for kids, the kids, you know, they're high school, they're in college. It still is, you know, it changes that mindset. And, and the person that's being controlled is like, uh, will be thinking, well, you know, if I don't agree, they're not going to love me anymore. And then there's that whole worry of, you know, if they withdraw my law, their love for me, then where's that leave me? Then, you know, we're not going to be in this relationship. And will I find someone else? And all this psychological play goes on and it's extremely damaging. And I work with many clients now that have that issue in their adult relationships. And it's, it's a scary thing. Yeah. If someone is controlling you, how do you control yourself? So if the decisions are made by someone else and they are telling you, for instance, to drink this alcohol or use this other substance or jump off this bridge to use kind of the classic example, and that is what you've been kind of conditioned to do, where someone else is telling you what to do, how they're controlling your behavior, then you don't have that autonomy over what you're doing because they say jump, you say how high? Instead of giving that rational thought to say, no, I don't want to drink this. I don't want to jump off the hat. And I know these examples sound kind of trite, but again, it goes back to that physical or bodily autonomy. This is what I'm willing to do with my body and how I'm going to let it interact with other people in the world. Exactly. And then it's also why it's important with your children as you're raising them to talk about core values and beliefs. And yeah, I, I was not someone who drank. I went to college and hardly ever drank because I don't like it. It has nothing to do with, I don't like how it feels. And I always, I used to joke that I was put on this earth to be a designated driver, but gratefully I had enough will and enough control over me And I went through a lot of peer pressure in my 64 years, (laughs) but I always said no. I mean, even now my kids will be like, have a beer. And I'll be like, no, I don't want one, you know, and it, you have to be a strong enough person to stand by your beliefs and your values. And even for me, when there's, plenty of times in my life, I wasn't that strong. I was strong on that. I, I didn't want to do it and I didn't do it. And that's, it's a hard thing to put into a child. So remember that adolescence in particular is when the youth are trying on different hats. Is this me? Is this not me? There may be a certain amount of rebellion uh, to try to stick out, but they also try to blend in. What can I be? Where am I going with my life? And when you have a younger person who feels like they're the only one that feels that way or is the only person struggling with that, they haven't seen the modeling, 
that can be really challenging. And I will point out that I think that social attitudes are shifting a little bit, particularly with alcohol, uh, insofar as someone says, no, they don't want to drink, let that be. They don't need to give you a reason. But there are other groups, uh, kind of social groups, that normalize not drinking. So the idea of someone who's straight edge, that is not a negative thing to be. Um, these people are not pursuing other substances, and that is accepted. If you have a group where uh, they have a religious kind of sense towards that, people that say, I'm not going to have sexual contact until I'm married, and that is important to me, you will occasionally draw some snickering, but at least they're not feeling alone in that. They have other people to support them who share those same ideals. So that kind of social aspect, I think, is really helpful and protective. It is. It is. And and that's, you know, that belief can help you find other people that believe the same thing, you know, as that com- conversation is created and find that support. And, and it's hard. It's like you say, you know, the teenage brain adds three things to our brain. We add risk. It adds, it adds uh, being with their friends all the time. It adds belonging. That's how your kids are wired as teenagers. They're wired for risk. They're wired to be with their friends all the time. So don't take it personally. <laughs> That's how they're wired. It's not like they don't like you. They just are wired to be with their friends and they're wired to belong, which is the biggest one, because if they don't feel like they belong in their home with their family, they're going to find somewhere to belong. And it might not always be great. This is importantly true for the unfortunate situation of people being kicked out of their homes or feeling like they need to escape their home environment. Because if they don't feel the love and respect and feeling welcome uh, in their own home, they're going to go find a place where they are. And that very easily sets people up to be victims. Where we see our youth being when they are more independent, it's, it's kind of a joking title, but one of the manuscripts I've submitted, one of the papers I've submitted uh, was adolescence is all go and no slow. The idea that an adolescent is a car with a functioning gas pedal, but that brake pedal doesn't always work. Where do we want to see that person who's understanding risk be when they're past 25, when they're 30? What is our hope for them? How can we guide them to that point? Again, flying with that safety net. So when we're not there, either because we just don't exist anymore uh, or because we're just physically not there, what would we hope that they do? What values do they have, as you mentioned before, that help guide them? Exactly. And and trust and respect of your children is so important because it teaches trust and respect and it helps your children actually trust and respect themselves. And that's so key in all of this. And if you're, you know, it's, it's why I'm on a mission to stop a million parents from yelling at their kids, because when we yell at our kids, it is disrespectful. So if a child is constantly feeling disrespected, they are going to find their respect. And that may lend very easily to a child being controlled and not just women, men too. And being in a situation where they're controlled by another person 
and they interpret that control as love and respect because they don't really know what it is. Well, think also back to how to make a baby cry. If they've got a toy or some piece of food that they're kind of into and you take it away, they're going to cry in a way that if they were never holding on to that in the first place. So when we make things forbidden, saying you will not do this, that is absolutely going to set people up to want to do that, to push that limit. And I'm not saying that everyone has to be okay with, their, with the idea of their children being sexually active or using substances, but the more that it becomes the black spot, we don't talk about that, the more it becomes taboo, more likely a younger person is going to want that. So again, pull back that curtain, say what this means. I'm hoping that you're not going to be engaged in this type of behavior, but if it comes up, this is how we're going to respond to it. This is what the potential negative outcomes are. If you do this again, not to scare them or, or, or act like, you know, better necessarily, because we've all made mistakes, right? But to say, when I was faced with this situation in my life, this is what happened. And I don't want you to have to go through that. It's part of my philosophy of medicine in the clinic. I was really uncomfortable seeking healthcare as a college student because I didn't know what that was going to involve. So again, I try to explain this is what is happening next, but you always get an out. If this is not something you want to do, an aspect that you're not comfortable with, you tell me and, and we move past that. So again, kind of pulling back all of this mystique. Exactly. And I, I love that you brought up sharing your own story with your kids, mm -hmm. you know, because we have gotten in in our life in awkward situations too, you know, regarding anything. And if it relates to something there's good that your child's going through, share it. Number one, it helps them to understand that you're human too, and you're not God. And number two, it might just help them get out of a sticky situation. You know, education, knowledge is power. You hear it all the time because it really is. And just because your children know something exists doesn't mean they're going to go out and try to find it, you know, try to do it. They're going to maybe be hopefully more aware of it so that they can keep themselves safe as they grow up and go through all these stages of their journey to adulthood. Well, we can guide decisions and that goes anywhere from complete laissez-faire, letting people do whatever they want up to telling them what they're doing. But there's a sweet spot in the middle where we guide these choices. Think about this, for instance, for a restaurant. If you are going in and you are going to order a hamburger and the side option is fries, you're probably going to get fries, especially if having a salad is more expensive. But if we go in and the side that's given is a salad, even if you can substitute it out for the fries and it's the same cost, you may actually just keep the salad. Or again, if there's a financial incentive. So the point to this is by changing what the default is, you can actually guide behavior. If the default is in this household, we're not going to stay out past 10 p.m. And everyone is adhering to that. There may be exceptions where we can talk about, okay, maybe there's a particular reason that we're going to do that or the special night or whatever. But if there's a kind of standard, that is also really helpful than changing rules for each kid or for every single situation. It's a different 
thing because then the adolescents don't know what to expect and that's even more challenging. Exactly. Limits and boundaries are not mean. They are actually comforting to a child and they show them safety and security. And it's very important to remember and discuss with your kids what these limits and boundaries are. Talk about it and and allow them because they will test the limits. They will absolutely test, you know, boundaries and all that stuff, but allow them to talk about it. Okay, so you want to stay out till 1030 using your example. What what is going on that night? Well, there's a dance at school, blah, 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 whatever it is. And fine. Then on that night, you stay out to 1030, but that doesn't change the curfew itself. And children should not be allowed to just roam the streets. They need to know someone cares about them. They need to know someone loves them. And that is actually shown with the way you love setting up limits, setting up boundaries, enforcing them, and giving them a structured, compassionate, happy home. And again, that's how you care for yourself. Yep. So exactly. it's modeling those good relationships, but you need to have that strength yourself, even if you yourself as a parent have been through trauma. And we all have to some degree, but how do we have the positive out of that? What have we learned from that experience? So that is not going to get perpetuated. So that doesn't become an issue for us where we take up negative coping strategies and then expose our children to that. How can we work on ourselves so we can help others? It's the same idea with an aircraft issue. Put your own mask on first before helping others. You really need to look at yourself, what you've been through, what you want to replicate from your childhood, what you don't, and work towards that as a plan. You will not always hit every mark, and I'm definitely learning that with my younger twins, but at least you have a map for yourself. So giving yourself that kind of consistency And then, of course, your kids see that so they know what to expect as well. Exactly. Learn what you need to know. Learn, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So learn, educate yourself, let your kids be educated. Don't be afraid of education. To the the original point, which was I started exploring this area and learning because I realized I didn't know. Exactly. And when I wanted to provide good care to that student and I recognized I don't know what to tell him fully, I started into this and I started learning and now spreading as it were the gospel of what I learned. And you can see that with our patients as well. This is what they learned in clinics. So then they're starting to spread the correct information. Or even if you have a student that's coming in and you're talking about things and saying, we want to make sure that you are not getting subjected to sexual violence and controlling behaviors. And they say, no, no, that's not happening to me. Great. I'm super glad to hear that. But why don't you take these pamphlets or this information? Because you might have a friend who's going through that. So we kind of get people onto our uh, educational army, as it were. So recognize, as you say, our ignorance, our blind spots. Try to educate yourself, but then share that information. You want to not just consume information but you want to be able to teach and share it as well. Yes, absolutely. Amen to that.
Well, Dr. Ben, I have really, really enjoyed this conversation and we could go on and on. There's so much information to share and I'm hoping you listeners found a lot of this of value to you. But if you could give our listeners one last piece of advice related to anything that we talked about in this conversation, what would that be? Your kids are going to make mistakes. You are going to make mistakes. Learn from that. Move past it as best you can. And use that as a learning opportunity for all involved. Great advice. Great advice. Well, I'm really grateful that you hear, you're here with us. Is there somehow that a parent can reach out to you if they need help? Sure. So remembering that I am a family medicine physician, so I treat all ages. My specialty is not just pediatrics, um, but I am very Googleable. Uh, my last name is Silverberg. Apart from Robert Silverberg, a mathematics professor also at uh, University of California, um, it's a fairly uncommon last name. So I should be able to be findable, especially it's just Silverberg, WVU. Um, please, I'm happy to answer questions via email. I am terrible with the phone. Um, but sure, if any questions come up, reach out to me and see what kind of conversation we can have. Oh, I love that. Thank you. And I know you're also available for speaking engagements because sure. yeah. we actually um, <laughs> met in the airport when yeah. he had done a speaking engagement. And the way that that came up, uh, funnily enough, is is one of my learners, one of the people in the audience, came up to me to to be appreciative of the, the presentation. And I'm not trying to sound arrogant, but you know, Celia overheard that and was like, "Oh, that's interesting. Let's talk about it." So again, right. that's that sharing of information. <laughs> there uh, you, you go. You learn something, you spread it. So exactly. that was kind of a wonderful serendipity. So thank you, Dr. Ben. I'm so glad you were Pleasure. here with me. Thank you so much. Of course. And I, of course, will have all of his information um, in the description of this podcast. If you need to reach out to him, please do. If you have any questions for me, please reach out. That's what we're here for. And as always, I wish you days filled with peace, love, tons of laughter, because it really is the best medicine. Stuff is funny. Laugh more. Have fun. And I'll see you here next time on the Pumped Up Parenting Podcast. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Pumped Up Parenting Podcast and being a part of my mission to stop a million parents from yelling at their kids. Be sure to head over to pumpeduparenting.com and grab your free copy of the Patient's Playbook. Wishing there was a manual for your toddler? Well, great news. Now there is. Pick up your copy of Raising Happy Toddlers how to build great parenting skills and stop yelling at your kids, plus my three new children's books at celiasbooks.com. That's celiasbooks.com. If you're loving this podcast, please feel free to share it with your friends and pay it forward and also leave a review so I know who you are and can thank you personally. Tune in next time for more tips, advice, and strategies as you continue to pump up your parenting and create childhoods that everyone in your family can blossom from. Have yourself a really happy, fun day. Bye-bye.